It's all good. All right, thanks. No worries. <laughs> now it's going to fall over on me. Ah, there we go. Perfect. Right there. Yeah, that's great. All right, thank you. Hopefully you can still see me. <laughs> this is way better. Now my neck won't be hurting. <laughs> um, that's one of the things I've realized is, uh, as I've gotten older, whenever I'm reading, which uh, my neck hurts so much afterwards, so this will be much helpful, much more helpful so I don't hurt this afternoon. All right, so last week Greg talked about the fullness of life being found in the church in terms of us telling a story and remembering the story of Jesus at work in our lives and at work in creation around us. And today we're going to be talking about the fullness of life in the church being found in worship and how worship forms us, it engages our heart, and orients us towards the living God. With that, and before all that, before we go on that, let's pray. God, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are for us. Thank you that you are the source of all goodness. You are the source of life. You are the source of love. And I pray that every person here would know in the deepest part of their being that they are loved by you. That they would in turn love you and those around them the way you love them and love those around them. In your name we pray, amen. So in, on Wednesdays in youth group, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And a, a couple things have stood out to me as we've been going through it. First off, Jesus likes these... Gospel of John portrays um, these really intimate moments with Jesus and one other person or a couple other people. It's like these long conversations where Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter, where he has these intimate conversations with people. And often, often, he asks questions. So for example, uh, there's this crippled man and God, Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Or there is a there's this time when a bunch of his followers leave him because he's teaching a hard message, something that they didn't really like. It was, made them uncomfortable. And he, after a bunch left him, he turned to his disciples, the 12 following him, and said, do you want to go away as well? And then at the very end of the Gospel of John, after he's died and is resurrected, he interacts with Peter. And Peter had betrayed Jesus, had denied knowing Jesus, even after promising he would always follow Jesus, even unto death. But when the moment came, Jesus denied him three times. And so at the very end of the Gospel of John, you have this really interesting, heart-wrenching moment where they're like facing each other and Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times. See, Jesus has a way of getting right to the heart of the matter with his questions. And that's made the most obvious, I think, at the very beginning of John and the very first words that Jesus ever says in the Gospel of John. This is in John chapter 1, verse 38. Right before this, uh, we hear about John the Baptist, and he's going around talking about how there's this messianic figure coming that's going to save the world. Um, and then he points to Jesus and is like, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then some of John the Baptist's uh, followers and disciples, two of them, they look and they're like, Well, I'm going to follow that guy then. So they follow after Jesus. And then this is what Jesus says to them. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? The very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. What do you want? And that's our question for, my question for you today and for myself. What do you want? What do you long for? What are your deepest desires? It's interesting. Jesus didn't ask them, hey, what all do you know? 
or what, what do you think? He said, what do you want? It's a piercing question that gets to the heart of discipleship because it addresses our deepest longings and desires. What do you want? See, our wants, our longings, our desires, our cravings, our loves, they form the very core of our identity. And they're the, they're the, those desires, are, that's the wellspring from which our behavior flows. This is why Scripture counsels in Proverbs, counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And then in John, Jesus frequently speaks of himself as being the bread of life and living water. It's interesting. He calls himself the bread of life and living water. See, for Jesus, discipleship isn't really a matter of knowing. It's more about hungering and thirsting. It's not really what you're thinking and what you're knowing. It's more what are you desiring? And hungering and thirsties are like the most primal desires we have, right? That's like the desire to survive. So when Jesus asks, what do you want? He's not posing a question or a puzzle for your head. He's posing a question to your heart. And it's not only seen in the Gospel of John, also in Matthew, for example, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those who know all about righteousness, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, for Jesus, discipleship is curating our heart and being attentive to and intentional about what you love. When Jesus says, follow me, he isn't saying, hey, make sure you cognitively assent uh, to my life, to my death and my resurrection. I mean, that's certainly part of it, but way more than that. He's calling us to align our longings. He's calling us to align our desires and our loves to the deepest longings and loves and desires of God's. See, as image bears, we are made to desire in general. <laughs> we all have longings. And as image bears, our longings are most fulfilled when they are um, pointed towards and oriented towards God. Whenever we enjoy God and we, want, uh, to, and we want what God wants. Whenever we hunger and thirst for what God craves for in, this, in his created world. Augustine, who was a uh, bishop and theologian from the 4th, 5th century, the most influential probably person in the history of the church outside of the New Testament writers, or the biblical writers, uh, who was a bishop in North Africa. And he has this saying, of his most, probably his most famous thing he said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So our hearts, they're restless, they're searching for something, they're searching for meaning, they're searching for purpose. But they'll never find fulfillment until they find themselves directed towards God. And then, Paul talks about this idea of love forming the core of our longings and our wants and our desires and our being and our identity. He says this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. What's interesting here is he doesn't say, I pray that you would have more knowledge and more depth of insight so that you can love better. No, he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. He's saying, I pray that you experience love in order to know. I think we typically think of it the opposite way. I know in order to love. But Paul's saying you love in order to know. 
So once again, what do you want? What do you love more specifically? We all have a vision of the good life. In that vision of the good life, it guides us, it informs all of our actions. It's a vision of the good life that our, our heart points to. And as I mentioned before, discipleship is curating our hearts to be attentive to and intentional about what you love and desire. So what is your vision of the good life? Because our hearts inform our actions far more than our brains, how often have you learned something and you've like known it to be true in your mind, but you still haven't changed? I mean, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> in fact, it's mid-February. I'm sure many of us made New Year's resolutions. And I'm sure many of us have not kept up with our New Year's resolutions. Hopefully, many of you did. But I'm going to guess many of us have not uh, kept up with our New Year's resolutions. Even though you know it's good for you. It's because our heart and our brain, they, they seem to not always go the same direction. I mean, how often... Um, I tell myself I need to be gentle whenever someone's angry at me and not respond in anger back, but respond in patience and love. I know that I should do that. And yet when the moment arrives, what do I do? I respond in anger or frustration. So you might begin to realize that you can't think your way to holiness. You simply can't. No matter how hard you think about holiness and being holy, it doesn't mean you're going to become holy. It doesn't mean you'll be like Jesus. Why is that? Is it, is it that you just aren't thinking hard enough? Is it that you need more information, new information, new ways of seeing that information? I think the problem with that is it assumes that we are primarily thinking things. So we primarily go about this world as creatures that think, and that drives all of our actions. But I think, I think that's funny to say that, but I, I think it's a different way. I think we should view ourselves in a different way. I think we are primarily loving creatures. We are primarily creatures of desire. Jonathan Haidt, who's a, a well-known like, psychologist, and uh, he has this metaphor that I think is really helpful. He talks about the rider and the elephant. I've got a picture up here. And he says, the rider is like your conscious, um, verbal, thinking brain, sort of like your rational self that you're, uh, you're aware of. Then the elephant, that's like your, the automatic, emotional, visceral brain, the gut reactions, the instincts that really drive your actions. And we look at that and we're thinking, oh, the rider is obviously guiding the elephant. You know, the rider's on top of it, he guides it, or she guides it. But I was looking up stats and, uh, when I was getting this picture, and African elephants weigh around 12,000 pounds. I weigh around 200. You probably didn't, want to know, didn't realize you know my weight this morning, but that, that's about it. And uh, imagine there's a discrepancy of 11,800 pounds there. If I want to go and my brain says, you know, you shouldn't eat that ice cream. But then the elephant says, oh no, I'm eating that ice cream. Which one's going to win? The elephant will win almost every single time. Almost every single time, the elephant will win. We all can relate to that gap between what we know we should do and then what we actually do. And to bridge that gap, I think to change it, we have to engage in the power of rhythms, of small habits and liturgies that form the elephant that slowly change the course of the elephant and align our hearts and our desires um, to the loves and desires of Christ. So how is, our, uh, how is our heart formed and shaped? What forms our desires which cause these good or bad actions? Well, I think we have to remember we're all on a journey. We're all on a quest like Frodo Baggins going to Mordor. We're all on a quest. But the question is, where are you journeying to? 
What's that vision of flourishing that you hold in your mind that directs all your actions? We all have one. And it draws our heart and our heart points towards it. And that vision of the good life draws our heart and then all subsequent actions follow. Uh, I like this quote, you might have heard it before, by the guy who wrote The Little Prince, a children's book. Um, He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So instead of focusing on just chopping up wood for it, make them desire to go out to the sea, awaken a longing for something greater, for adventure, for the unknown. And then they'll want to build a ship to do that. So that vision that you might have, that's what drives you and that's what motivates many of your actions. And what's unfortunate is that uh, many times we aren't even aware of the vision we have. We're, we don't even realize what, um, where our heart is pointed towards. And often our, our, our vision is not um, instilled in us based on like someone arguing really, really well or convincing us of some truth. Instead, our vision is there based on someone or something painting this picture and capturing our imagination and drawing our heart towards it. So once again, this isn't a question of whether or not you long for some version of the good life. The question is what your vision of the good life looks like. As creatures made in the image of God, we can't not desire and long for something. This is why the heart is the fulcrum for the human person. That's why Proverbs says, guard your heart, because out of your heart flows everything. See, we don't just think our way through this world, as we said before. We long and love our way through this world. We are pulled by different visions, like a tractor beam in Star Trek or Star Wars, just pulling us along. We're pulled by these different visions. And our hearts... They're like a compass that point towards this vision, but not only are they the compass, they're also the engine that drives us toward that vision. And these these wants and desires are often operating at a subconscious level, and we're not always aware of it. And we've been using the the terms desires and longings, but another way to say it is, Jesus asked, what do you want? You could say, what do you love? At a subconscious, deep level, what do you love? And you might not even be aware of it. In fact, most of us probably aren't completely aware of it. What do we truly love? Another aspect of it is I think Paul portrays love as a habit. And I'll show you, talk about that in a second after we read this verse. So we'll go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That word virtue is important there. Virtue was something that a lot of the Greek philosophers of that time, before Jesus and Paul and afterwards, they loved to talk, talk about. And virtue was a habit, but you know, a lot of times habits can be either good or bad. You can have a good habit or a bad habit, but virtue is a good moral habit, meaning something that you do without even having to think about it. So in this case, with Paul, he's saying being patient and gentle without having to tell yourself to be patient and gentle. So maybe you're in an argument with your coworker or your spouse or your kids or whatever, and you're reminding yourself, okay, gotta be patient, Ben. You know, don't lash out, be kind, just be a good listener, 
Just show them love. That's great. You have to start somewhere. But Paul's goal is that you don't even have to think about it. You just naturally are loving and patient and kind and gentle and humble. That's when love is a virtue. It's a habit. It's something we do without even thinking about it. Which, that's actually a good thing because you can form habits. <laughs> Whether good or bad ones, you can form them. And since love is a habit, it means that your longings, your desires, and your loves can be shaped informed by the power of the Spirit, so much so that Christ-like love bubbles up from your heart and you act in the way of love, just like Jesus, without even thinking about it. I hope you can see from all this how important your desires are, how important the orientation of your heart is. So once again, discipleship isn't just filling up our minds with the correct beliefs and, beliefs and doctrines. All. There, there is importance to that, but it's way more than that. Discipleship is changing our hearts. It's recalibrating our longings, our desires to be in line with the love of God. Once again, Jesus isn't asking, what do you think? He's asking, what do you want? And what Jesus wants is for me and for you to want differently. We learn um, to love the wrong things without even realizing it. I mean, that's the whole point of like commercials and advertisements, right? Like, it'll be, sometimes what they're advertising has literally nothing to do with the, the entire commercial itself. It'll be like a barbecue and everyone's perfect looking and it's a perfect backyard and a perfect house and everyone's laughing and with these perfect smiles and, and then it's like Coke for a good time or whatever it is, I don't know. Um, and it's like, what, Where, you know, where's that connection? But in my mind, I'm thinking, oh man, yeah, that, that's a good life right there a family that's not fighting, a house that looks perfect. Oh, they look so happy. Oh, how'd they get, oh, Coke, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're drawn towards it. Your heart is oriented towards consuming more and more and more so that you can be happier and happier even though it never leads to complete satisfaction. The same thing with social media. Our hearts are being captured whenever we, whenever we see people going on these vacations and they're all smiling and they all look so happy and there's these gorgeous, amazing settings. Then I want to do that, but I'm here stuck at home and I'm go, don't, going to a job that maybe I don't really like. And then maybe I do get to go on vacation or I do get to go on a hike, but the whole time I'm fighting with my family and it's, we're just not getting along. Or I go on this hike and it's like, it was sort of boring actually. And I just walked around for five hours. It wasn't nearly as exciting as the picture I saw so-and-so post. See, our heart's being captured by something that can never completely fulfill us. Our hearts are becoming uh, disordered. Instead of loving the vision of the kingdom of God, we love the God of nationalism. We love the gods of power, of money, and sex. Now our hearts are oriented towards these false gods, and all of our actions follow suit. So how do I want differently? How do I recalibrate my heart? Well, I think we recalibrate our hearts by knowing the love of God. Now you might be thinking, were you just talking about how knowing isn't the same? It's all about experiencing it? Yes, you're totally right. So I'm going to explain what I'm saying. So I think we recalibrate our hearts by knowing the love of God. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Once again, Paul writing. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. First off, just want you to notice, he starts off with being rooted in love. That's where it starts. Then he has this interesting um, phrase here that's always stood out to me. 
He says, he prays that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge. What? Know something that can't be known? It doesn't really make sense. But the reason he says that is the, the word to know, the verb to know in Greek is gnosko, and it's a very experiential, intimate knowing. It's not knowing the way I know that one plus one equals two. In fact, it's often used um, to refer to marital intimacy. The man knew his wife. You'll see that throughout the Bible. There's an intimacy to that word to know. See, Paul isn't saying, I want you to be able to write on a test, How, what is God, does God love you? Yes, God loves me. He did this. Yeah, and just write it out. He wants you to know it in the deepest parts of your being. He wants your heart to be completely consumed and changed by the love of God as shown in Christ Jesus. He wants you to be so, feel the love so strongly and experience it so strongly that your entire being is reshaped, your heart is transformed, and you are reoriented towards the source of love itself, God. So it's not a matter of just thinking ourselves to Christ-likeness. Instead, our desires are trained by these rhythms, by these practices in the community that we are part of. We practice knowing and experiencing the love of God by everything we do. There's this word called liturgy. And liturgies are practices that form our hearts. And no matter what we do, we're all engaged in various liturgies. And they're forming our desires. These liturgies could be liturgies of consumerism, they could be liturgies of nationalism, or they could be liturgies of the kingdom of God. So we learn to orient ourselves to the kingdom of God, not only by acquiring knowledge, but, but by practices and rhythms, these liturgies. And these liturgies make the love of God real in our hearts and train us on how to then love those around us. And in one sense, this happens right away when we become followers of Jesus, but in another sense, it takes a lifetime of practice. So for example, throughout the Bible, there's this idea that our hearts, they're just not, they're disordered. That we need like a heart surgery in order to fully love, to make love a virtue. To make love a virtue, we need this heart surgery. And one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, he's talking about whenever God will come and restore us, which turns out being Jesus coming and restoring us. Um, he says, God will take your heart of stone, the heart of stone that's dead, it's cold, He's going to turn it into a heart of flesh, a heart that's fully alive, a heart that is oriented towards love itself, towards God. And then in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers say that that has happened with Jesus' death, his resurrection, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we turn to Jesus, our hearts are transformed, and Paul says our heart is circumcised, which, weird phrase, right? Just strange from our perspective. And what he's saying is he's referring back to the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, the sign that you are a part of the covenant community of God. So if you're an Israelite male, the sign that you're part of God's community was being circumcised. And Paul's saying, no longer is it an outward thing. Now it's an inward transformation of your heart so that you can begin to love God fully. And Augustine, who we referred to earlier, he liked to call the church a hospital. But I'm going to make it a little bit more specific. The church is more like a post-operation care center. How many of you here have had surgery? You don't have to raise your hand. You know it's private. I had surgery two years ago. I had knee surgery. And I can tell you, I didn't get out of knee surgery and then like, all right, I'm good to go and run out the hospital and go play soccer and run a five-minute mile and dunk a ball. No. It was not like that. I had surgery, but the only, that was only the beginning of the path towards wholeness. Then I had to go to PT. I had to go to the doctor multiple times. And even, I still have to do things. I'll never have to stop doing things in order to keep my knee healthy for the rest of my life. 
And I'd go to physical therapy, and the physical therapist would check. He's like, have you been doing your exercises at home? I'm like, yeah, even though they're super boring. I hate doing them. He's like, are you doing them? Sometimes, actually, I didn't. And then he would tell me this, paint this vision of what could be. He would talk about Adrian Peterson, who was a well-known running back in the, uh, in the NFL, American football. And uh, he's like one of the best running backs of all time. And he was like, Adrian Peterson tore his ACL, and the year after his ACL surgery was the best season of his life. That could be you, Ben. <laughs> so he's painting this vision of the good life, and it's like, yeah, that could be me. I need to train. I need to do all these habits and practices to make sure my knee is healthy. So I think that that's sort of what church is for. Church is the post-operation care center. God knows that we are creatures of habit. We are creatures of habit. And he has given us, the church, the gift of worship as ways to recalibrate our heart compass. So the gift of worship recalibrates our heart compass. So on Sunday mornings, we gather to worship as a community. And a lot of times we think of worship as just the singing portion, but really worship is the entire time. From the artwork along the walls that orient us towards the kingdom of God, to the music that awakens our imaginations, and it, it, it awakens a hunger for the love of God to be made real in my life, as well as the lives of those around us. Then there's the songs that capture our imagination with the splendor and the majesty of the triune God. Then the prayers in which we cry out to a God who is not far away. In prayer, we're recognizing that God is not far away, but in fact, God is Emmanuel, God with us. God the Son became human and walked alongside us. God knows our pain, knows our suffering, knows our joy, and knows our longings because he became human in Jesus. And then we, we celebrate communion. And at communion, we remember the works of Jesus and are reminded of the hope of Jesus for this world. And we don't just sit there and be like, all right, remember in my brain, Jesus died on the cross, all right, cool, all right, and he died for my sins, all right, cool, and there's hope in the resurrection, okay, cool, that's not it. What do we do? We eat bread and drink the cup. We are engaging in the practice of hungering and thirsty, thirsting. Then the message, which helps us to recalibrate our hearts to what God is doing in the world, where we once again are captivated by the vision of the good life as found in the story of God. Then there's a time of reflection at the end where the Holy Spirit brings it all together and uh, orients our heart so that we can go out as people full of the love of God. Because it doesn't stop there. The Sunday worship service is the post-operation care center so that you can go out and continue living the life post-surgery. <laughs> continue the, living a life of reorienting your heart. Being aware of all the liturgies around you that are forming you, that are shaping you, that are trying to capture your heart with a different vision of the good life. And um, these liturgies of the kingdom of God that you practice at home or at work, I mean, they include so many different things. It could be Bible reading. It's small groups. It's helping out at dinner church or tutoring. Um, it's prayer. It's being in com just generally being in community. It's listening. So I hope from all this, you can realize that you can change, that there is hope for change. But it's typically not something that happens overnight. It takes a lot of work. And it's all about changing our hearts, our passions, our desires. It's all about knowing, not in an intellectual sense, but in the way of the heart, knowing the deep, deep love of, the God, love of God. So at this time, I'd like to invite the worship team up. I have a couple reflection questions, which I don't, yeah, I don't think it showed up on here, so I'll just say it. Oh, no, it did. Oh, no, it didn't. Okay, so 
Well, I didn't write them on here either. I wrote, uh, but uh, so I think that reflection questions were, um, what do you think you want? So not what, not like deep down, what do you want? But what do you think you want? Second question: What liturgies are forming you? What liturgies are forming you or shaping you? And then third, what do you actually want? What do you actually love? And that's hard to figure out. That might not be something you can figure out in a few minutes of reflection. I think that's something you have to think about throughout the week based on what do you prioritize? Looking at my actions, what do I actually love? So what do you actually love? So we'll have a time of reflection and also uh, one last song that the worship team will be leading us in. Uh, Before that, let's pray. And just don't forget that uh, if you want, you can respond to these questions. Either if you're on the online platform, you can respond um, at the connection card app or bulletin that you can click on. And then here we have the papers at your seat you can respond to and drop them off in the boxes as you leave. God, thank you that you are with us and you're for us. God, thank you that you desire for us to find, or you desire for us to flourish. You desire for us to know in the deepest parts of our being that we are loved. You desire for us to be a part of your kingdom vision, of restoring this world. You desire for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for your justice and love to be made real in all aspects of our lives in this world. And I pray that every single person here would one, know that love, and two, be attentive to the loves and the desires that might be off course. They'd be attentive to the liturgies and the visions of the good life that are making them, their heart point in the wrong direction. Holy Spirit, speak to us, illuminate what needs to be illuminated, encourage when we need to be encouraged, and may we go out full of the love of God and ready to show that love to all those around us. In your name we pray, amen.
those of you here, if you wouldn't mind standing as we sing this last song, as a reminder, our prayer team is available to pray with and for you. Those of you who are here or online, please take advantage of that as well as we sing this one last song of response. Let's let this song be both a prayer and words of worship. Every breath. 